I know Mike doesn't want me to say this or do this, but I'm going to say it. I don't know. Please don't fire me. Uh, it's been... It's been incredible having you on the team, uh, having you lead the team. Uh, I know we've been praying for a guy for four years, and I can speak from the staff side of things. It has been awesome working with Pastor Mike. So we are so glad you're here. We love this guy. Yeah. Uh, you can reprimand me later, I guess. But uh, yeah, if you got a Bible, we will be in uh, John chapter 10. We're going to start there. We will kind of, uh, the bulk of our section, though, will be in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So we've started kind of the, the backbone verse for this series in the fall has been kind of this keynote verse in John chapter 10, verse 10. It's a famous verse. I've got friends who have it tattooed on them. Many of you know someone like Randall Goodman has 1010 tattooed on him. That comes from this verse. So this is the verse that, again, has kind of launched our series here. And it reads this. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That abundant life, that's what we've been talking about this fall series. What is the abundant life? We, we have this word thrive. You just saw it up there. You, you kind of see the theme uh, in your program. You'll see it on our website, thriving. What does thriving look like? And we've talked about all different areas in how we thrive. We thrive on Sunday morning. We talked about this kind of the first kickoff week. We thrive on Sundays by being involved in multiple different ways in three main categories. The first one is it's important to show up on Sunday mornings. You know, uh, we believe that the gathering of God's people is important not only to worship God, uh, not only to learn from him, but to encourage other people. So your presence here uh, is not only you receiving, but it's you giving. And so that's important for thriving. And then last week, we uh, we kind of launched our group connect, as Pastor Mike just talked about. Uh, he talked about thriving in relationships, about leaving, about cleaving, and about weaving. And those all those aspects are very important in order to thrive in relationships. And today, we're going to talk about thriving in families. Now, I, I promise you, uh, I'm not up here kind of standing up here saying, okay, I'm the family expert. I've got this. Let, let you hear from my experience you know, I'm, I'm 33. I've, I've got a great mom and dad. I think I had a pretty good uh, raising up in a family. I've been, uh, again, married 11 years, got three kids. But I'm not about to say, okay, follow me as I'm the guy who knows how to do this whole family thing. So that's not what you're going to get from me today. Um, but I will say this. I, I am a pastor, and I have uh, given my life uh, to, try, to try and follow Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to kind of lay out an example from the Bible of, of what it looks like uh, to follow Jesus as a family. Uh, what does leading a family look like if you're following a life after Jesus? I want to paint briefly a picture of kind of the good life, of the thriving life, of what culture says uh, we ought to be doing. And then I want to kind of juxtapose that to what the gospel lays out, what the Bible lays out, and how we are to thrive in our families. So that's what I want to do today. Um, we're going to kind of start uh, in Deuteronomy after we uh, look a little bit about what culture and thriving talks about. So um, no one is going to disagree with John 10.10. 10. You read this and you go, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Everyone hears that and they go, oh, that's great. I want the abundant life. Right. Who in here wants the abundant life? Right. I, I'll probably contend that, you know, the primary reason you woke up this morning 
that you got into your car, that you parked in the parking lot, that you walked in here, that you found a seat, is because at some deep level you thought, you know what? Um, I would like to thrive. I would like to have this abundant life. And the reality is every person, whether you're a Christian, whether you're an agnostic, whether you're an atheist, whether you're a Buddhist, a Hindu, every person wants this life that Jesus is talking about. Everyone wants the abundant life. Everyone. Um, and where we start kind of dividing things up and drawing lines in the sand is when we start describing, well, what is this good life that Jesus is talking about? What, what does it actually look like to thrive? How, what are the metrics of thriving? And culture has very defined metrics right now of what thriving looks like. And I want to look at a couple of those and kind of see uh, where that has led. So if you kind of pay attention to, to not just media, but kind of the, the streams of thought that, go, that are going right now, uh, this is what is kind of considered thriving in culture. We've talked about this a little bit in this room here. But thriving in culture is primarily a number of things. You've got the number one thing right now, I believe, is kind of everything new all the time. Right? If you want to thrive, it's everything new all the time. Uh, it's, it's an escape from the mundane. So you want to get outside of routine. You, you want adventure. Oh my goodness, the buzzword of the decade, adventure. It's on everything. It's like, I'm going on an adventure. We're going to Winco. Like, that's not an adventure. I mean, maybe it is sometimes. Like, I've been there with my kids and I get that, but come on, it's, it's a trip to Winco. Um, we, we want to escape what we would consider, again, that mundane life, that life that you're stuck in burns with no culture, no good coffee, no good music. Like that is kind of the epitome of hell. And so we want, uh, we want this exciting new, new horizon every day. We live in a world where thriving consists of 24-hour commerce, 24-hour commentary, and 24-hour consumption all the time. On every head is a crown. Right, we've talked about this a bit. The good life in our culture is everyone is their own king. In every hand of every king is a scepter that was once reserved for kings and sultans. But think about the power that we have in our hands these days. Right, it's pretty, pretty wild. Anyone who can afford 70 bucks a month to Sprint or Verizon has virtually the same power as most kings and sultans throughout history that was only reserved for them. Think about this. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Show me who. You can see anyone you want at any given time by just saying, okay, Google, boom. You don't even have to push a button anymore. Right? You can, you can commandeer food to your doorstep within minutes. Um, think this week you can get a ride anywhere. Uber has come to Corvallis. Super exciting. Maybe, I don't know, you can kind of walk anywhere in Corvallis. So if you need a ride, that's weird, but that's all right. Um, you can shame or honor anyone by standing behind a screen because of someone's skin color, because of their political views, because of the size of their pants, because of the taste buds in their mouth. This is the world that we live in. And it's unfiltered, it's unrestricted, it's 24 hours a day. We all want our crowns, we all want our scepters. And then, what is the thriving family? 
Right? Think about some of the shows that are on right now. And this is not a knock on some of these shows. Don't, I'm, I'm not here to like shame you for watching these. I enjoy some of these. But, but culture has, has definitely painted a picture of what a healthy, thriving family looks like. You have shows like Modern Family, New Normal Parenthood, where there are all kinds of different dynamics going on in these families. You always have some sort of drama. And then at the end of the day, uh, you have this beautiful gathering where it's euphoric, utopic bliss. And no matter all the garbage that happened in the middle of the episode, everyone's happy because we're all a family again. And if you pay close attention, what is celebrated as healthy and normal is the, the kind of the, the, the fabric of those themes are really a deconstruction of the Christian worldview on many levels. And so you've taken a Christian worldview and you've said, nope, that is keeping us from progress. We don't want that anymore. What we want is the new normal. This is the better normal. This lifestyle is far better than what once was celebrated in the 50s and 60s. And Christianity is seen as repressive. It's seen as recalcitrant. The sexual ethic of Christianity is seen as completely archaic. And we live in this world where the new normal is very, very different than the Christian normal. And so Christianity is kind of, again, is seen as something that's keeping us from progress. Now, this isn't anything new. Um, it may kind of been, it may have flared up a little bit over the last decade or two. Uh, I think we have uh, some incredible words by our current Supreme Court Justice, Anthony Kennedy. Some of you guys might, might remember this quote from the early 90s. Uh, he's got a quote referring to the Planned Parenthood versus Casey trial, and he says this about the good life. He wrote this, um, at the heart of liberty, uh, kind of describing the good life, he says, it is the right to define one's own concept of existence of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. And this type of thinking has permeated our culture from our schools to our our top thinking uh, think tanks all the way down to small signs in yards all over our town. This is just the world that we live in. Unlimited freedom to say whatever we want, to think whatever we want, to have our own crowns, and to have our own scepters. And where has this led us? Right Again, I'm not the naysayer of like, oh my goodness, culture is crazier than it's ever been. But where has the deconstruction of the Christian faith led? Where has the deconstruction of the, of the family unit led? Where has the product of the sexual revolution brought us to? Where are we currently? We're at a place where the data is crippling. Right, Our families are more shattered than they have ever been. And here's the the more interesting thing that's coming up more recently is our kids are more depressed and more anxious than they have ever been in a long shot. In a long shot. I want to read you a few things here. Uh, Time magazine, actually, this is the New York Times. New York Times a couple of years ago had an article entitled The Changing American Family. In the article, it stated uh, all kinds of facts. Go go check it out. It's a really interesting article. Uh, But it's talking about uh, 40% of kids are born into a single mom or an unmarried uh, household. The article goes on and it reads this. It says, this churning, this turnover in our intimate partnerships is creating complex families on a scale we've not seen before. Uh, This is written by uh, Andrew Cherlin, who's professor of public policy at John Hopkins University. He says this. He says, it's a mistake to think that this is the end point of enormous change. We are still very much in the midst of this. 
Pew Research came out in 2014, and they said that less than half of U.S. kids ages 18 and over live in a home where mom and dad are present who uh, came from their first marriage. The so-called good life is radically changing our families. In addition, here's what's happening to our kids. Um, there have been multiple articles that are, have been published by the American Psychological Association Journal that talk about this fact. The average kid today, so we're talking average, this would be my daughter who's five, the average kid now has higher levels of anxiety and depression than your child's psychiatric patient in the 1950s. This is your average kid today. Some of you might remember this article in Time Magazine. It was written last year in October. I'm going to read a little section here. The title, the title of the article was Teen Depression and Anxiety, Why the Kids Are Not All Right. Do any of you remember seeing it? It's kind of on the front of Time Magazine. Um, here's what it said. It says, in 2015, about 3 million teens, ages 12 to 17, have had at least one major depressive episode in the last year, according to the Department of Health and Human Services. More than 2 million report experiencing depression that impairs their daily function. About 30% of girls, that's one in three, I've got three girls, this means one of my girls, and 20% of boys, totaling 6.3 million teens, have had an anxiety disorder, according to data from the National Institute of Mental Health. Experts suspect that these statistics are on the low end of what's really happening, since many people do not seek help for anxiety and depression. A 2015 report from the Child Mind Institute found that only about 20% of young people with a diagnosable anxiety disorder get treatment. It's also hard to quantify behaviors related to depression and anxiety, like non-suicidal self-harm because they are deliberately secretive. And here's a really interesting quote. It says this, If you wanted to create an environment to churn out really angsty people, we've done it said Janice Whitlock, director of Cornell Research Program for Self-Injury and Recovery. As we have deconstructed what was kind of that Christian ethic and culture, as we've created a new normal for the family, for the individual, for the self-autonomous individual with unrestrained commerce, unrestrained commentary, um, what we've created is really pretty scary. And I, I don't feel like I have to preach this to many of us because many of us are parents and we know this. You know, some of us would say, yep, yep, that's me, that's me, that's me. In fact, it probably reaches all of us on some level. And where we have said the only way to get, uh, to the, the way to thrive is to be your own hero, when life comes crashing down for the individual and they don't have a God to reach to outside of themselves, they're left hopeless. They're left in despair. That's where kind of cultural thriving has brought us to. But what we want to do is we want to offer an invitation to something different. See, the church these days, I think, is poised in such a unique time period in history. It's an incredible time where where we are offering a very different lifestyle, where we're offering a very different king, and we're offering to thrive in a family in a very different mode. Um, let's look and see what the Bible says about this. If you've got a Bible, let's go Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to paint a picture here. I'm going to try to do this quickly. I know some of you guys are like, you're supposed to be preaching. Open up the Bible. I'll get there. I promise. So um, we're going to be looking at Moses' words in Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to try to write some things on the board. If you guys can't see, you should have scooted over in the middle. There's plenty of seats there. Um, 
Again, I'll do this quickly, but I want to kind of lay the framework for where Moses is when he starts this speech, because it's an incredible speech. So in the very beginning of the Bible, I'm going to try to write nice and big, you've got Adam and Eve in the garden, all right? And it is a whole of two chapters before sin enters the world. So by the time Genesis 3 comes in, uh, you have sin. And this is essentially people saying, God, I don't want your way. I want that crown on my head. So after Adam and Eve, you have roughly 1,500 years. And then you get Noah and you get the flood. About 1,500 years. About 500 years after that, it's about 500 years, you get Abraham. Abraham in Genesis 12, God calls to him. He's kind of that wandering Mesopotamian pagan out in the middle of nowhere. And God calls to Abraham and he says, through you, I am going to make a people group. This people group is going to give and show the love of God to the rest of the world. And uh, and the promise was made that through Abraham, there would be a great nation uh, eventually becomes the Jewish nation. Uh, Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons. Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons. One of which is who? Joseph. Now, you could have said a lot of names, 12. Uh, Joseph. Joseph becomes uh, the second leading commander in all of Egypt during a time of great famine. And so uh, at the very end of the book of Genesis, which is that first book in the Bible, uh, you've got all of this family, this Abrahamic family, moving down to Egypt. Uh, because Joseph was in charge, there was food there, people were thriving in Egypt. At the very end of the book of Genesis, uh, we have the death of, of Joseph. So Joseph dies at the very end of Genesis. And then Exodus chapter 1, we have a new a new Pharaoh who doesn't know the family of Joseph. And basically you've got this whole scene where, um, where all the Egyptians are saying, this people group has gotten too large, too powerful, let's enslave them. So you've got 400 years, 400 years, I don't know if you can even see that, of slavery. The whole time there's a remnant who's going, God promised us that he was going to make us into a great nation. He promised us that he was going to bring us somewhere where we could thrive and be a people group. Well, in Exodus chapter 2, we're introduced to Moses. Moses was the guy, you probably uh, perhaps remember him. He was the guy who was responsible for doing all the miracles, bringing people out of this 400 years of slavery. Moses, um, he brought the people. There's the 10 plagues. There's a ton of things that happened. But he brought the people by God's miraculous hand out of 400 years of slavery. And at this point, there's about 2 million people here. They say about 600,000 men. So the estimates are about 2 million people. Moses brings them out of Egypt. You've got the parting of the Red Sea. They leave that. You've got God leading them by the cloud and the pillar and all these great miracles. God providing food. God providing water in the desert. And um, Moses is bringing these people to this great land that God originally promised to Abraham way back here uh, a few decades, a few centuries before. And they're on the edge of the promised land. They're about to go in and they choose 12, uh, 12 spies to go out and check out this land. Uh, of the 12 spies, all but two of them, all but Joshua and Caleb came back and said, you know what? I don't know if God can do this. And they doubted God. And the response from God, because of all this doubting, was, um, Moses, you and your generation is all going to die before you can set foot into this land that I'm going to give you. 
So you got a wandering of 40 years in the desert waiting for a generation to die. And the book of Deuteronomy uh, is essentially is more or less a farewell speech from Moses. So you think of Moses, you think he is wandering the desert, basically waiting for a generation to die before this next generation can go. He's about to pass things off to Joshua, the next leader. And the book of Deuteronomy, it's a fascinating book. You can read it on your own time. But it essentially is this farewell speech to this people who are wandering in the desert, waiting to go into the promised land. And this is where we're going to pick it up. I'm going to ask you to do what I do sometimes. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read uh, part of his speech here. So if you would stand with me. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Ten Commandments have just been given. Uh, Moses has has described that already in his speech. And here is what we get in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may take a seat. So here's Moses. He's giving this farewell speech. He's giving his, his last words, if you will, to a generation waiting to die. And he gives a a message of this is how you thrive. I want to offer two invitations and one warning this morning. Um, Twelve times in the entire Bible do you hear this phrase, that it may go well. Twelve times in the entire Bible. Nine of the twelve times you hear that phrase from this speech from Moses. 
in the, in the, in the totality of Deuteronomy. A majority of it, right around this section in Deuteronomy 6, uh, where he's kind of giving the law, he's giving the Ten Commandments. We read this in Deuteronomy 4, 35, 16, 5, 29, 33, 6, 3, and 6, 18. And at the heart of this phrase is a Hebrew word, yatav. It's a verb. And the Strong's definition is as follows. Uh, it is to be caused to be made well, to be accepted, amend, to be made right, to be benefited from, to seem best, to make cheerful, to be content, to be diligent. Another word that we might use would be to thrive. If you want things to go well, if you want to thrive, nine times Moses gives us a recipe. So I want to give you two invitations and one warning from the thriving recipe of Moses. The first invitation for a thriving family, and you know that this is the families because he's talking to a whole generation of people, and he's talking about sons and sons and their sons, so it's not just a promise to one particular people group. And you see this by the promise to Abraham that doesn't get fulfilled for 500 some odd years. So he's talking to a large group of people. The first invitation to a thriving family, and this may seem obvious, but hold on for a minute, is a thriving family loves God. It starts there. In fact, it all starts there. If you want to thrive, if your family wants to thrive, you have to love God. We read this in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God. Everything that starts off from Moses' speech, from the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods. You shall love the Lord your God. Well, Pastor Josh, how do we do that? How do we just volitionally tell ourselves, well, I'm going to love something, right? That's hard to do. I mean, I've had a lot of conversation with people on different levels that like, okay, I, I may have a desire to love God, but man, there are different seasons where my will does not just affect my whole heart that how do I just love God? Okay, if you're struggling to, to love God, I, w- I would invite you today to start spending more time with him. It's a big invitation. So I think uh, our culture, we are so inundated with noise on every single level. Noise from a screen, noise from a podcast, noise from the radio, noise from people, just constant connectedness. And I think we fail at times to get alone and to be with God. You know, if, if we're supposed to be disciples of Jesus, if we're supposed to be apprentices of Jesus and follow the way of Jesus, often uh, the Gospels talk about how Jesus left the group of people and went alone to be with God. If you want any shot at being a family who thrives, you've got to love God. Think about anything in your life that you love. Right? What, what are some things you love? Just yell out some things that you love right now. You passionate people, just yell out some things you love. What do you love? You love coffee. You love your spouse. There were more nods for coffee than spouse. Um, football. Yeah, what else? Kids. We love our kids. Hot showers. Good Lord, they're awesome. Um, we love running. We love exercise. All the things. Most of these things, other than maybe kids, it wasn't an instant love. Right. Think about uh, if, if you love to exercise or you love to run, where does that begin? That begins one push up at a time, one page of reading at a time, one lap on the track at a time, one cup of coffee at a time, one date with your spouse at a time. 
But I think sometimes we just think in the church, well, if I'm going to love God, all of a sudden I'm just going to love him. I'm just I'm just going to will myself to love God. I don't think often it's different. I think we need to spend time with God. I've also lived long enough to see friends who've kind of walked away. And most of the time, what I've noticed is that there has been a major lack of spending time with God during those seasons. If you want to thrive, you have to love God. The second invitation to be a thriving family is to teach your family to obey. Again, it may seem simple. We'll pick it up uh, in uh, verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them. Let me jump over to verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all of his commandments. Uh, we pick it up in verse 7. That you may teach them diligently to your children. This is kind of this famous section here. That you should talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. The invitation here is to find out how God wants you to live, to live that way, and then to teach your kids how to live that way as well. So on, on the first invitation, there is a love that comes from your head, that comes from your heart. The second invitation is with your hands. What are you doing with your life? Right? We get this similar words in the New Testament, Ephesians 6. You think about parents and you think about kids, and that relationship in your mind probably perhaps might go to Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then you get quoted back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, that it may go well with you. There's that word again. That it may go well, that you may thrive. Fathers, here's the key. Don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Teach your kids. But here's the thing. We don't just want this to be an academic teaching. Right? This, this is not something that, like, okay, kids, we want, I just want to fill you up theologically. I want your head to know all these things. I want to pound in you all these Bible verses. Like, yes, we want them to know theological truth. That is very important. But what we also want them to do is we also want them to see how you live. Teach them to do. Not just teach them to think. Teach them to do. Right, so we got to show our kids on a Tuesday evening, what does a follower of Jesus look like? On a Saturday morning in your family, what does a follower of Jesus look like? You know, it's one thing to be able to tell your kids, okay, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your understanding. It's another thing to tell your kids, you know what? I'm having a hard time trusting God right now. But the Bible tells me if I trust in Him, uh, He will sustain me. He will provide. And so right now as a family, we are going to seek the Lord together. We're going to have some extended time of praying for the Lord together. We're going to be a family who is radical. See, as a, as a Christian family, as a follower of Jesus, our family should look very different than other families. We should be families who practice radical grace. Our families should look very, very different. So your kids should grow up in a home where you look a little bit different than everyone else. And that be a good thing. Simultaneously, our families should be families who practice the gospel. And what do I mean by that? I mean, I've said this so many times up here. That mom and dad to your kids, you need to tell your kids and show your kids that you need the cross as well. That you mess up. Right? I need to regularly tell my girls, Penelope, Charlotte, Whitney, you know what? Daddy was trying to do something and I failed. I was wrong. And Jesus forgives me and he died on the cross for my sins and I'm sorry I failed you as a dad here. 
See, when we don't regularly confess and live out the gospel in our lives, what do our kids see? Our kids see that we're just trying by behavior to be Christ. When the reality is, I'm not Jesus, I'm not God, I will never be, I need the cross, and my kids need to know that I need it. Because they need to know that they need it. So the gospel is shared both by teaching the word of God, by living it out on a Tuesday, on a Friday, but it is also shared by repeatedly telling your kids that, you know what, mom and dad failed here. We failed in our relationship. You know what, sorry for, for arguing in that manner, in that tone. I'm sorry for the way that I talked to your mother. I was wrong. Kids need to hear that regularly. If they're going to believe the gospel, they need to hear that. Lastly, the warning, our propensity to wander. Uh, Look at verse 10 here. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord. In chapter 8, if you want to turn there, we read this in verse 11. This is another chunk here. It's very similar. We read this. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. By not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents serpents and scorpions and thirsty grounds where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fled you in the wilderness with who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he may humble you and test you to do good in the end. Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your forefathers on this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. You too shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord. If we observe how cultures promulgate the ideals of the good life, wow, that does not erase very well, they go in cycles. You have proclaiming generations, kind of your building, founding generations. So you have proclaimers. You have assumers. And you have either rejectors, we'll call them reject, reject. This is, you, your proclaimers are the ones who look around and they see, and this is a pretty bleak world that we're living in. 
There's a lot of brokenness. There's not a lot of hope right now. The things that culture is promulgating as the good life doesn't seem to really be working. We need to start something new. And it's often these proclaimers who have a fresh new wind of, of a movement of the Lord and who start something great. This happens generationally. It's happened from the beginning of time. We have this cycle all throughout the Old Testament and really up to this day. Um, and then you've got the next generation, the assumers generation. And they assume faith from their parents. Uh, their, their parents did all the hard work to lay out the faith. It was real to them. They experienced suffering. They experienced all these hardships. And they were brought close to the Lord. They really had a need for the gospel. And the assumers, you know, they didn't experience quite the same things as their parents. But they lived right next to that generation. And things were great. And then you get the deconstructionists. You get my generation, right? So this is post-war America. Where things, you know, everyone remembers the, detra- the depravity of mankind after the war. And so there's this great generation who's built up and faith is really built up. And then the assuming boomers come along. Right? This generation, yeah, they assume the faith of their parents. It's a great thing. But then my generation comes along and they don't remember what life was like. And we deconstruct everything that Christianity says is good and right. And where does that leave us? It leaves us back to that bleakness again. It leaves us forgetting everything, and it leaves us saying, you know, we're going to promulgate good ideas, and where are we right now in the middle of culture? Right now, we're at a very unique spot where people really are desperate for something different because deconstructing what once was has not built anything better. And people are left wondering, okay, what's ahead? What's better for me? And so as the church, we have a unique very unique time period, a very unique season where the invitation is to, is to ask people, hey, let's try something different. The, the, the good life that culture is promulgating right now, it's leading nowhere good. We're more depressed. We're more anxious than we've ever been before. Would you try something good with me? If you want to thrive in your family, these three things are crucially important. Do you love God? Are you spending time with him? Are you teaching your next generation? Are you teaching that following generation? Are you doing it by the way you live? Are you doing it with the words in your mouth? Are you doing it with the actions on a Thursday? And then are you remembering who God is? Are you remembering the faithfulness of what God has done? We, um, we talked about this as a staff. Pastor Mike and I talked about, you know, we want to give a little bit of time here. So we're going to have three songs. Uh, we want you to think about, okay, where are you in your thrivingness of your family right now? Where are you in getting away and spending time with the Lord in loving God? Where are you in teaching your kids? Are you, are you pushing all of that off to the Sunday school teacher? Are you pushing it off to the Christian school? No, that, it says moms and dads, teach your kids. You know, all of us have areas that we need to repent. All of us have areas that we need to shore up on our lives. So we're going to spend some time reflecting on that. We're going to bring up the worship team. I'm going to pray and we're going to say amen here. Father God, I, I thank you that the invitation here that you've given us to a life of thriving is, is something that looks very different than the world around us. But it is an invitation to a life of following you that leads to so much greater joy. Lord, we may not always be happy, but the ultimate truth is that we have joy because we know that you're a good father who loves us and you say again and again in your word if you want to do well if you want to thrive if you want this life do this love god obey him lord i pray that we would try that 
that we as a people would be committed to fixing our eyes on you, to being obedient, and to not forgetting who you are and what you've done for us. We love you, and we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.